Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we continue our housing coverage as communities react to the province's new upzoning regulations. Is this generational change that we need or just overreach from Victoria? Housing Minister Robbie Kalen joins me, plus Delta Councilor Dylan Kruger and Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward. Plus, contributor Jerry Mayor Judson joins me as we look at how dead electric vehicle batteries find a second life thanks to a Coquitlam company. And should you be using your Google Maps for hiking? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Wednesday, November 8th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a lot going on today. Let's jump in. Uh, at this moment, the provincial government is announcing legislation that will allow the building of new homes near transit hubs. In fact, I'm just looking at BC1 right now, and the minister is taking some questions. Minister Revi, Minister Ravi Kalon, he will be joining us at 345 to talk about uh, today's announcement. Now, the proposed legislation will require municipalities to designate what they call transit-oriented development areas near transit hubs. These areas will be land within 800 metres of a rapid transit station and within 400 metres of a bus exchange. In these designated areas, municipalities will be required to permit high-density housing developments and they also uh, have to remove restrictive parking minimums and allow for parking to be determined by need and demand on a project-by-project basis. As I said, um, Housing Minister Ravi Kalon is uh, in the midst of announcing that program right now. He's with Rob Fleming, the Minister of Transportation. Uh, The Minister will be joining us on this program at 3.45. Now, yesterday, the government introduced legislation that it says will cut back on home-building construction times by pre-zoning land. The bill would also create a new amenity cost charge tool that would give builders and municipalities a more transparent understanding of the costs associated with a housing project from the start. Now, Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward says his community, which still has plenty of land for housing, will be stifled by the new rules from Victoria. Take a listen. It is going to create some some delays and as we transition. There will be some cash flow implications that we're going to have to address. We currently collect those fixed-rate amenity fees uh, during the rezoning process, and if that's deferred until building permit, uh, there'll be some cash flow issues that, that will have to be dealt with during a transition. Mm-hmm. It's the pre-zoning of land. So if we're required to pre-zone for a single family uh, to be allowed to have six-unit apartment buildings by June, uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to transition that program on the same time frame. Uh, that was Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward. He's going to join us at 5 o'clock as well to talk about yesterday's announcement and today's announcement uh, as well in regards to uh, greater density in and around transit stations as well. Now, not all communities are the same. Of course, communities like Delta don't have a lot of undeveloped land or no undeveloped land, quite frankly, compared to Langley Township or even Surrey. So how do the new rules affect them? Well, joining me now is Councillor Dylan Kruger from Delta. Dylan, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, thanks for having me. Your thoughts on the announcement uh, by the uh, provincial government on the upzoning, are you supportive of it? I, we, we had uh, Eric Woodward on yesterday express some concern uh, as a fast-growing community that it does uh, hinder them in regards to how they plan, how they move forward. Uh, what impact do you see, uh, if any, in Delta? 
I see this as a very positive step, and we're certainly not innovators here. The city of Edmonton, of all places, has actually now required pre-zoning for their entire city to match their OCP. So what the province is doing is actually taking a completely redundant step out of the system. If the goal is to approve housing faster, rezoning is a duplica- duplication of the existing OCP process. So I see this as a, as a good news story if we want predictable and quick housing approvals in, in this province. But does it not hinder you if, if you have wide swaths of land that you look, you're already building, you're already building uh, a density, you're already building row homes, townhomes, condominiums, that missing middle we all talk about. Uh, if you're already doing that, does this type of, uh, uh, of sort of regulation not hinder fast growing communities when they're already planning, already heading in the right direction and take some of that power away in regards to how communities should develop over the longer term? Well, look, and there's going to be differing views on this amongst elected officials. I don't like the rezoning process because it, it gives municipalities a lot of power that they probably shouldn't have to dictate form and character of development. If you're walking in to build a single-family home uh, in, in any city in B.C., you're walking in and getting a building permit. You're not having a local council making arbitrary decisions on uh, the paint color that you're using or the types of windows or the landscaping on your lawn. Those are the types of decisions that cities can hold over developers when they're holding their rezoning uh, process hostage. I'm curious, uh, in regards to um, haggling that developers have to do with cities in regards to community uh, amenity contributions, that type of thing, how long can something like that last? Uh, how how long can CACs last? Yeah, just in regards to com- the conversation between a city and, let's say, a developer for a major project. Oh, these negotiated CAC conversations, Jazz, they can go on for months and months and months. And look, I get it. We need to have a separate and serious conversation about financing in local government because local governments in this province don't have nearly enough tools to uh, build the infrastructure that we need to accommodate growth. So that's a, a separate but related conversation. But negotiated CACs add time and uncertainty to the process where you could have two identical projects with two different developers and two radically different combinations of amenity fees and and um, uh, and pro- sometimes you get projects in lieu, such as a, a proponent of below market housing. But what the industry needs and what we need, if we actually want to approve housing uh, fast, uh, is that consistency in the CAC process, and that's what this new legislation is going to achieve. Um, between what was announced already, uh, three units potentially on a single family lot could be developed in this province, up to six around transit uh, sites. Um, secondary suites or laneway homes um, can be um, uh, built uh, across this province, right? Uh, and based on what's been announced in regards to uh, upzoning uh, already, do you worry, and I, and I would agree, look, we have housing challenges, there's no doubt. Do you worry that we're moving a little too fast, though, in regards to the public coming along? Because these are significant changes once implemented. Uh, do you worry that the public may be concerned here? They are significant changes. Uh, they're changes that, that I and others have been advocating for for a long time. So it, it's, it's great to see them come forward. But I agree. I think there's going to be a, a component of public education here. But it's also important to remember, Jazz, that even though these changes happen on paper, you're not going to see the changes in your neighborhood overnight. You're not going to see overnight a bunch of fourplexes and duplexes popping up all over your single-family neighborhood. What this is doing is allowing cities to grow organically again like they once did. So instead of putting your neighborhood or your city into a time capsule and saying whatever the zoning was in 1972, that's what it's going to be forever until the end of time. 
We now allow opportunities for families as their needs change, as their housing needs change, uh, to adapt uh, their piece of land uh, to, to fit those changes. So we're going to see more organic growth over time. But do I think that overnight neighborhoods are going to become overcrowded and the streets are going to be full and the sewers are going to be full? No. We do need to plan for that. We need to pay for it, which I said, like I said, is a separate and important conversation. Uh, but we're not going to see these changes overnight. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about, oh, parking in established neighborhoods that don't have basement suites, may not want basement suites, or don't want laneway homes. How real do you think that is? Uh, look, there's always going to be parking challenges. There's parking challenges in neighborhoods where there are no uh, suites or, or laneway homes, where you have intergenerational families living together, uh, and you've got six or seven cars in the family. So uh, that's always going to be a challenge, whether or not there's suites or laneway homes. Uh, we need to fund public transit. We need to fund public transit expansion to give those. And it's not going to work for everyone. Not everyone is in a stage of life or position to be able to take transit. But for those who are on the borderline of choice, who could but don't because it's just not consistent enough or accessible enough, those are the ones we need to capture as growth is coming into this region. We're going to have a million more people in Metro Vancouver in the next 20 years. They can't all be taking cars. Yeah, lots to talk about. Uh, and sometimes when I look at these conversations, there's almost a... Um and it's not too pronounced, but you see a, a generational um, concern. There's a younger generation going, let's go, let's do this. An older generation saying, hang on here. I don't want my single-family neighborhood to be overrun. I guess that's part of the conversation, part of the education as well. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there, there is a, there's a hierarchy of needs uh, in society. And I say safe accommodation, safe places to live is top of the list for me. Uh, there's other concerns, and they're real concerns, traffic and parking and, you know, quote-unquote neighborhood character, but none of those trump a place to live. Uh, young people, people under the age of 40 who are, have families of their own uh, are in an existential crisis in this region, not looking and seeing a future for them, not seeing a place to rent uh, as their family needs expand, let alone a place to own. Those are the people uh, that we're fighting for, that want to stay here, that we need to stay here because we need the jobs, we need the employment, uh, but they don't see the housing options for them. They're, they're in a place of desperation. I'm a young counselor. I get a lot of these calls. They're heartbreaking calls. Those are the people that we're fighting for here to make sure that everyone has a safe place to live in this region. Dylan, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Jazz, thanks so much. Hey, welcome back to the show. I could have, I could swear that we basically had this guest on yesterday, but uh, there's lots to talk about. Joining me now is Ravi Kalambisi's Minister of Housing. Today, the minister uh, announced uh, new legislation in regards to building homes near transit hubs. Minister, welcome. Yes, thanks so much for having me again. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to co-host this week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can do this job as good as you can. But well, if you want me back? I'm back, man. Yeah, there you go. Well, lots to talk about. Okay, so first and foremost, uh, talk to me a little bit about the the, the basics of this uh, in regards to what uh, potentially one could build in and around Sky SkyTrain stations uh, and bus stops. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. And you know, this announcement today, I think, is uh, obviously uh, an important step to get more affordable housing units built. And it ties in with all the other pieces that we've brought in over the last two weeks. Uh, essentially, what this allows us to do is to ensure that when we spend or invest billions of dollars uh, into transit opportunities, that we're able to build housing close to that important infrastructure. And so uh, that means, uh, you know, if you're at a SkyTrain station, it means that within 800 meters, you'll be allowed to build up to eight stories. And as you get closer, within 200 meters, uh, it allows you to build up to 20 stories. And so what we're doing with this legislation is we're setting 
what the levels are. So local governments won't be able to deny a project if it comes in within that density or that height. But local governments still have the ability to work with the, the proponent to say, well, we want this level of affordability or we, you know, we'd like this many three bedrooms or two bedroom units uh, being built. So it gives local government some flexibility, but it creates a whole host of certainty for anyone that's looking to uh, move a housing project forward. So a no municipality with this legislation, once it's passed, will be able to slow walk it to the point where developers walk away. These are the new rules. They can't get around that. These are the new rules. And, uh, and you know, the, the reason why Metro Vancouver mayors, for example, put out a press release is because I think they also appreciate, A, we collaborated with them, we consulted them on it, but also the fact that it's a standard across regions. So no more, why is this community doing this? Why are we doing it? And then they're not over there. Now we're saying to everyone, if you want that investment of that infrastructure, the transit infrastructure, then we want to see the housing come with it. And by the way, when we build that infrastructure, now we're able to buy land for healthcare-related uh, facilities, um, childcare. Uh, even we're considering schools uh, near some of the transit stops, so we can build the amenities around uh, the transit. And that's the type of communities I think everybody wants us to build. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the Metro Vancouver, I see Metro Town, which would fit into, I think, what, what, what you would like to see. You see uh, Brentwood, uh, you see Lougheed uh, progressing uh, nicely. Uh, Ted Field, prior to our conversation here, he and I were speaking, and uh, he had mentioned that, you know, the, the commercial drive area there uh, in Broadway, you still, the, the old Safeway, they're still fighting over whether or not they want greater density there. There are many uh, SkyTrain stops in Vancouver where you still have single-family homes in and around, in and around those areas. Um, why do you think in your mind that Brentwood and sorry, the, the Burnaby area has been able to build all of this, but yet in Vancouver, you still have transit stops with single family homes. You would think that this would have been a priority 20 years ago. What do you think it's hindered, hindered or stopped this moving forward in the past? Well, well there's various reasons, Josh, why we don't see the level of housing we need uh, around transit. Uh, but fundamentally, one of the things we're grappling with is saying, that can't be anymore, right? Uh, and with all the legislation that we're bringing together, again, all of it's connected together. The reason why we're doing this is because every single day, the premier, me, my colleagues, we hear from people saying, I can't find housing. Uh, we have people working full-time jobs and they are living in RVs because they can't find a place to live. So fundamentally, the reason why all of these pieces are coming forward is that the way we've been doing things it's not working. We're not getting enough housing built. We're not getting the housing that people desperately need. And we need to rethink how we do it. And what we've done with the approach we've taken here is we started on the other end and said, what would the ideal look like? Mm-hmm. And once people identified what the ideal looks like, we're saying, okay, let's start building that up. And I think, uh, again, this will allow us to have that housing and community. And now with future infrastructure, because we're not done investing in transit, we have to invest in more transit opportunities for people. When we invest, there's a level of certainty that comes with that investment that, yes, we are going to get housing with it as well. Uh, There is in this legislation, I think the term being used is removed restrictive parking uh, minimums. We're still going to need cars moving forward as much as we think we're all going to be taking transit. Uh, Why did you want to remove the, the parking minimums? Yeah, we're going to need parking. And so this is not saying that we won't get parking in the future. But what we're saying is, 
that if you have a restrictive policy that says you need a certain amount of parking, it might not need uh, uh, it might not meet the need of that specific project. So essentially, what we're saying here is every single project will be assessed site by site. And I'll give you two examples. One recently in Burnaby, where there was, I believe, a 20-story building being proposed, but the bylaw that was in place in Burnaby said that they needed to build 14 floors of parking below ground. Uh, and, uh, and the mayor said to staff, what, what kind of, what, why are we doing this? Like, it does not make any sense because the cost for a parking stall is fifty to $100,000. So that's just one example. But I also have not-for-profits uh, come to me and say, listen, we're building something by SkyTrain. Um, it's for low-income seniors. They're telling us we have to build all this parking. Who's going to use it? By eliminating that requirement, they can now actually build the right amount of parking that they need, but put the rest of that money to creating more affordable units for people in our community. So we're not saying parking is going to be gone. We're saying let's build the right amount of parking for whoever that project is trying to serve. And local governments still have the ability to put requirements in for commercial. So if there's a commercial space below, they'll be able to do that for accessibility, all those pieces. So I I think it's just planning in a better way so that we're building the right amount of parking as opposed to just a random number that somebody decides. If a city doesn't like a particular tower, even though it fits within the rules, could they stop or stall a project like that based on saying, hey, we want more parking? And the developer says, well, other communities don't require that much parking because they want more supply built. Would they not stifle or stop some of these projects and hinder these projects with these kind of, with, with, let's say, demanding more parking? Well, well, Jazz, with all the initiatives we have, what we're trying to do is depoliticize decision-making when it comes to housing. Too often, we hear people coming forward saying, oh, that mayor doesn't like me, or that council doesn't like me, or, uh, you know, they don't want this type of housing. And what we're saying with the process is, let's engage with our communities, let's plan early and decide what the community plan looks like. But when you have a plan, and it's already been approved by the community, then let's start working the plan. So then it doesn't matter if you, uh, if the person on the other side doesn't like you or whatever. It's being judged on the merits of its project. That alone will allow us to get housing built much quicker in our communities. It'll create a level of certainty for those that are actually trying to invest in affordable housing. And also it'll help our not-for-profits who are saying, hey, we need flexibility because interest rates have gone up. Global inflation, all the projects are not as viable as they once used to be. And now this allows them to be viable. So my hope is that we get housing done, we depoliticize the process mm-hmm. so that people have more certainty as we go forward. Mr. Cannell, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Josh. Stay oh. safe. Welcome back to the show. A new employment trend has emerged in the trucking industry that breaks radically with traditional employee and owner-operator models. Now, known as Driver Inc., it increasingly uh, drivers and carriers are now entering into agreements whereby Drivers will incorporate themselves and will then sell their driving services to the carrier. Now, what distinguishes them from owner-operators is these drivers do not own, lease, or operate a vehicle. They drive the carrier's vehicles and have little to no financial investment in their business with little to no risk for financial loss. Now, the motivation, of course, uh, of course, would be while each company could organize things slightly differently, the basic process is the driver is incorporated, driver brings no assets and has zero risk. Uh, or investment. Um, employers make no source deductions. Provincially, good good chance workers' compensation is not being paid by anyone uh, as well. 
the Canadian Trucking Alliance estimates that companies can achieve up to $15,000 per year in savings per employee. Now, the impact on the trucking industry is quite profound. Exploitation in one consequence is one consequence of what industry experts describe as a billion-dollar scam left to fester in the trucking sector. Uh, the misclassification of workers as self-employed to cut costs by evading basic labor protection, payroll taxes, and other legal obligations is having a significant impact. In the greater Toronto area alone, data shows that self-employment in trucking has increased by 172% over the past decade, reaching levels uh, levels critics say cannot possibly um, be legitimate. Now, the model is being adopted by companies across Canada to create the benefits of the underground economy to them as owners. Joining me now to talk a little bit about how all of this is working and the impact it's having on our trucking industry is Dave Earl, who is the president and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thank you for joining us. Uh, glad to be here, Jazz. Yeah, this is a, a, a maybe a little complex, but I think it's important we have this conversation. Now, I said there's a 172% increase in the self-employment designation in the greater Toronto area alone. Uh, what can you say about British Columbia in regards to this type of uh, uh, this type of classification? Yeah, it's really hard to track, Jazz, but I can say definitively the scam has arrived here. Um, we do get calls from drivers. We do get calls from carriers you know, who are hiring people uh, who are either asking to use this model, uh, you know, with the, the misguided perception that it provides them with more income. Um, but it's here, you know, and uh, is it dozens or hundreds? Um, it's underground, so it's really tough to find, but uh, we're working really hard to try and find it. So in this case, if a driver comes along and says, wait a minute here, I don't have to own a truck, I don't have to worry about fuel. I just drive. I get paid hourly. What's wrong with that? What would you say to that? Uh, Nothing wrong with that. But what happens with this circumstance is you're not only just paid hourly. Often you're paid by the mile. Often you're uh, paid by the route. And that's not uncommon in legitimate contracts. The problem is here is when you set yourself up as a personal service business or a personal service corporation Mm -hmm. and the carrier doesn't withhold any deductions uh, from you for taxation purposes. They also don't pay CPP, EI, uh, workers' compensation, uh, sick days, any of those protections, they don't pay because you're notionally a business. Mm. But, Jess, that doesn't mean that you don't have to pay tax. And what ends up happening to these individuals who sign up under these agreements, and many of them are new Canadians and don't know, they think this is the way it is, when they go to file their tax return to access other government programs, they find out they owe tens of thousands of dollars a year in unpaid tax. And then they're left on the outside looking in. It's so exploitive. It is so caustic. If the individual was much more aware of tax laws, got much better advice, could this type of structure actually work in their favor? Never in their favor. It could work, but what ends up happening is the rate that's paid to the driver in this arrangement is deliberately set to undercut other rates because that's how the carrier, the unscrupulous carrier, gets the contracts. They just pay these individuals less, and the individual thinks, well, that's okay. This money is in my pocket, not understanding that they're not paying into the social programs, but beyond that, they still owe the tax. If this was a legitimate approach, it would be on par 
with legitimate businesses, legitimate independent operators, and we wouldn't have this exploitation problem. But that's not what's happening. So at its core, it's a race to the bottom. Absolutely. It's a race to the bottom, and it's new Canadians in particular who are incredibly vulnerable to this because they just don't know. Um, Have authorities begun cracking down on this at all? Beyond saying this individual hasn't paid their taxes, uh, owes back taxes, but in regards to the broader crackdown on the industry or these owners and scrupulous owners, has there been any sort of crackdown or investigation? After five years of extremely aggressive, heavy lobbying in every province and federally, we now have dedicated federal managers and officers who are looking at uh, misclassification of employees uh, through Employment Service Development Canada. Um, So it's progress, Jazz. But come on, this is a billion dollars a year of tax dollars that are sitting there waiting to be collected and CRA is soft-pedaling on enforcement. And that's just not acceptable. So, Ann, you're saying a billion dollars a year uh, uh, should be paid in taxes, and it's not just based on this particular practice, and I'm going to assume in Ontario and British Columbia? This is it. It's a billion dollars a year across the country, at least, that's not being collected because of this practice, because it flies underground, because of a lack of enforcement. And that's just, I mean, Jazz, when we look at the social programs and the stresses that government is under for revenue, I, I, my members are mystified at why we don't see some really serious movement on this issue. Uh, Now, when you say CRA, Canadian Revenue Agency, that's federal. Is there any provincial jurisdiction in this? Sure. Um, The majority of the industry that we operate in is federally regulated, so that's why it falls to Employment Mm -hmm. and Social Development Canada, and taxation is 100% CRA. Uh, I'm very happy to say that WorkSafe BC has been incredibly cooperative uh, in setting up uh, systems in their systems to detect this practice and to make sure that it doesn't take root. Um, They've been just excellent to work with. And the, the federal government also, I mean, they've been good to work with. They've just been incredibly slow. And that's what we're saying is we need to move quickly on this. We need to stop it before it takes root. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. We've been talk, talking about a, I guess a scam is the right word, called Driver Inc., where you basically uh, uh, are asking drivers to uh, set up their own business and incorporate, and uh, they are taken advantage of by uh, employers who do save money, but that individual, the driver, uh, is expected to, to pay payroll taxes, other taxes as well along the way, and they get stuck with the, the, the challenges of paying all of that after the fact, and there's been a this sort of uh, self-employment technically, has been increasing by 172% in the past decade in Toronto alone. It's a huge issue in the industry, uh, as Dave was saying. Dave, uh, I'm curious, um, do you see similar types of practices in the United States? Not as much, Jazz. And again, it depends on the taxation structure. Uh, every state's a little different. I mean, there, and your listener will may not know this, there are states with no personal income tax at all. Um, so the, the the motivation, if you will, is very different because of that different taxation structure in, in the United States. Uh, I'm very curious, uh, when you're talking about these new uh, drivers, is there um, any way that they can be educated? Is there any programs that can be set up that if they are taking courses uh, at some of these schools to be truck drivers, that part of those courses should include 
some sort of uh, um, education in and around incorporation in regards to the Canadian Revenue mm-hmm. Agency. Do we not see any of that? It's not built into mandatory entry-level training because that's all um, you know, really concentrated on road safety. Uh, but the larger, better schools, all of them have modules that they talk about taxation structure, business arrangements, what's appropriate, what's not, what worker rights are, what it means to operate a business. Um, but you've got to appreciate, Jess, for people coming into Canada in particular, explaining the nuances of employment law and dependent and independence, that's a hard conversation for, for individuals who have worked for a long time and are familiar with the language and culture. For new Canadians, it, it's a really tall order for them to be expected to understand all this. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of a, a change is the industry going through? Um, when you talk about new truck drivers, give me a sense of the just the human resource demographic change that your industry is going through right now when it comes to just new drivers and older drivers retiring. Oh, sure. Just in BC alone uh, last year, I have to pull the number off the top of my head, but I believe it was about 6,000 new Class 1 licenses were issued. So those are new people that are becoming qualified to drive the heaviest vehicles. Uh, when we talk about class three, which is when you get into, um, you know, dump trucks, cement trucks, um, it's, the numbers are even greater. So, I mean, there are literally thousands of new entrants coming into this industry every year in British Columbia. Uh, and we don't uh, have a particularly large trucking industry in BC. So it's about, you know, average what you would expect, but the, the center of gravity uh, really is in Ontario. Um, Alberta uh, has a significant sector as well because of the nature of their economy. Uh, but even here, Jess, it's thousands of people a year coming into the industry. Um, how comfortable, how co- confident are you that this will be dealt with in the next near, in, in the near, uh, in the near term? It's been a lot of years, as you say, the industry has been has been uh, trying to raise awareness on this issue, uh, and uh, it's 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 not resonating deep as it should. Uh, how long do you think you know that you can expect a crackdown from CRA, especially because I think that would change a lot of things if they were much more aggressive in in, in, in tackling this. Oh, absolutely. I remain always optimistic, Jazz. I, I do believe uh, that people are committed and are really looking uh, to do the right thing. Um, but they need a prompt and they, they need to, to understand that Canadians consider this to be an issue. And it's one of the reasons that uh, we have a dedicated website that helps people feed you know, into their concerns into the federal government. Uh, it's stoptaxandlaborabuse.ca. Um, just type in there and, you know, name and add and your information, and this gets right to your MPs, right to the decision makers saying, look, this, this is crazy. This has got to stop. So once again, uh, stop tax and la- stop tax laborabuse.ca? Yep, stop tax and laborabuse, all lowercase, stop tax and laborabuse.ca. All right, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the show. You might have heard uh, this weekend, it was Saturday afternoon, North Shore uh, Search and Rescue was, uh, rescued a hiker off a uh, uh, cliffside near Mount Frome um, after uh, the man followed a Google Maps trail that apparently didn't exist. 
Uh, search and Rescue, of course, the good folks at North Shore and many of our Search and Rescue uh, teams around this province do great work. And I would describe them as incredibly patient. I've, uh, in my early days as a reporter, many times up on the North Shore, uh, watching the great work they did. But it was quite interesting. I was looking at some of the articles today in regards to, in this case, a man following a Google Maps trail that didn't exist. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about Google Maps and uh, the outdoors in the backcountry is Doug Pope, search manager with the North Shore uh, Rescue. Doug, uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, hey, Doug, do we have you there? Looks like we may have lost. Yeah, oh. no, I'm here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem. So walk me through uh, regards to this incident uh, over the weekend on November 5th. Well, on November 5th, we got a call uh, about a stranded hiker Um quite nervous and, and worried because he was stuck on a cliff, he said, um, up above Kennedy Falls on the northeast slope of Frome Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, we, with the weather coming in and uh, low ceiling, we were only able to get a field team in uh, his general vicinity by a helicopter, so that field team was let down below him, and then we were able to make their way up to him uh, uh, belay themselves on ropes in the steep terrain and then belay him out safely back down to a location where um, they could all get picked up by helicopter and then were flown to safety. Hmm. Uh, did the man give a sense of, of how he planned his hike that day? Um, not very much. I, I don't have the information as far as um, was he using Google Maps at the time and uh uh, what what he was doing. He wasn't very well prepared, and um, he was looking at maps um, during the rescue to try and explain where he was, including Google Maps, but uh, he wasn't very well prepared and ended up on that very steep slope and in an area that we've been um, three times now in the last two years where um, before, I, I don't recall us getting called into that area in the past 20 years that I've been on the team. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, from what I was reading, the man followed a Google Maps trail that didn't exist. And did, did, did the North Shore Search and Rescue ask Google to remove the trail off its Maps app? Yeah, so we became aware. Uh, the last time we were in there doing a rescue of a similar sort was back in September, um, I became aware in late September that um, this erroneous trail was being shown on Google Maps. So I contacted Google, and the only way I really knew is you're able to, and anyone can do it, you're able to flag trails or roads that are arrows in the Google Maps app mm-hmm. and indicate that they're a problem, and I did that and indicated the urgency that there had been a fatality in that area as well, and to let them know that it was an error, and that was I did that in late September. In September. Now, in, in the previous two incidents, do you know if they were using Google Maps as well? It, no, no, I don't know for sure, and, and really, as I said, we didn't know that there was that trail mm-hmm. um, uh, it, as an error until like September, so I don't know when that trail was put up. Uh, in your in your experience, are people using these iPhone and uh, Samsung apps uh, increasingly for hiking, and and should they be? Yes, they're 
they're using them extensively. Um, and there are some good tools for, for use on your phone. I was kind of the old school. Being on the team for 20 years, I started out with Map and Compass, and I still think that's a good tool <laughs> for people. But um, being technology, then we went into GPS, and GPS, um, like a Garmin handheld GPS, is still the very best tool for navigating in the backcountry, and uh, our field teams still carry them. But most people, and, and many people, also use apps on their phone. Um, there are some issues with phones. They run out of battery. It's, you're using it for communication and emergency communications as well. So if you drain the battery trying to navigate with it, um, you could be in a situation where you can't get a, a 911 call out, those kind of things. But you can use a phone. Uh, we recommend uh, a couple different mapping apps like Gaia, G-A-I-A, is a very good a more professional mapping app that has uh, contours and trail data um, that professionals rely on. Um, our teams actually use, it's called CalTopo, C-A-L-T-O-P-O, T-O-P-O, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, a version of that for professionals is called SarTopo, and we use that on our phones, and we can actually track field teams if they have um, cell phone reception uh, online. So actually we're just, we're in the midst of a call right now and I'm helping from my my desk while I work and I can track the field team uh, on my computer here using SARTOPO. So there's good apps. You need to to practice to use them. You need to carry an extra battery pack Mm -hmm. to help charge that phone if you're using it for those purposes. So you can have it for immunity emergency communication but um yeah uh, google maps is not the right tool it's a great urban uh, navigation app it's not a great um, backcountry app and many of our customers that we end up rescuing are only using something like google maps and and that it's not the right tool for the job and and they often get lost because they're not using that right tool. Mm-hmm. So that's CalTOPO, C-A-L-T-O-P-O or GAI GPS, right. G-A-I-A GPS are the ones yes. for outdoor trails that you would you would recommend. I guess ultimately, uh, right. especially when you're in the urban areas, there is a false sense of security when we use some of these uh, apps and it's, and it's challenging enough sometimes even in, in, within the city that these, these uh, even Google Maps and some of these other apps are uh, aren't always perfect, but especially in the backcountry, that is not the way to go. That is for sure. Right. And yeah, you're right. And they're only a tool. So you have to have other skills if that tool fails you in in some way or another, and you can't just rely on one thing. Um, And in that vein, uh, if things do go wrong, you need to be able to communicate out. So having that extra battery pack on your phone is important, but also there's very little cell reception in the backcountry, even of the North Shore Mountains. So you need another way of getting a call out for help. And uh, the best way to do that is through some kind of satellite communication device. It's something we also strongly recommend. Um, Garmin InReach is one of them, mm-hmm. where you can send uh, emergency SOS text via satellite and communicate via satellite to both uh, emergency responders and your family to let them know your condition. Doug, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. 
In British Columbia, we have well over 100,000 electric vehicles on the road, with EVs accounting for nearly 20% of new light-duty passenger vehicle sales last year. But with so many electric vehicles out there, it did make me wonder, what do we do with their batteries once they degrade? In my search for answers, I came across Moment Energy, a Coquitlam-based EV battery repurposing company. Moment turns these batteries into stationary energy storage with applications from powering remote off-grid buildings to EV charging infrastructure. Edward Chang is a co-founder and CEO of Moment Energy, and he can do a much better job of explaining how an old, say, Nissan Leaf battery can become stationary energy storage. Within our facility, actually this facility as of a couple of weeks ago now is the only facility in North America that can commercially build and manufacture and deploy Second Life batteries uh, legitimately and safely. So what typically happens is the automaker will take in the battery. They will typically disassemble and test every module. So within a battery pack, which is, you know, it spans the entire width length of the vehicle. Within that pack, there could have 48 modules or eight modules. It really depends. They'll test each module to see which ones are good quality to be repurposed and which ones are bad. The good ones are then sent to Moment. Then in this facility, we actually developed one of the top battery test facilities in North America. So we will run through our own testing and then we will assemble and manufacture these battery systems, which originally were meant for electric vehicles um, and not for stationary storage. So we essentially have to augment a lot of the the characteristics of the battery module. And then it turns into, you know, a stack that looks like four feet tall, four feet wide, two feet deep. And each one of those cabinets can power approximately four to five homes. And we can put these cabinets, you know, on the side of neighborhoods to help uh, with a lot of the grid applications or right beside the EV charging station to help with EV fast charging. From powering EVs to charging them, it's impressively full circle. Repurposing these batteries extends their lives by essentially double. I asked Edward how old the batteries they receive usually are. Uh, typically, they're around 10 to 15 years old. Some of the batteries we get as well are a little bit newer than 10 to 15. But what we found is when you look into that battery pack in the electric vehicle, there's actually, it's only one battery that's actually degraded, causing all the other, let's say, eight or 10 batteries to show that they're degraded. But really, the remaining eight or 10 batteries are actually still of 80% state of health left. 80%. So if folks are trading in their EVs before the batteries are completely pooched, companies like Moment Energy are crucial to manage this potential for battery waste. But lawmakers are helping with this as well. We're seeing regulation force automakers to take responsibility of their own end-of-life batteries. And because recycling is really expensive, automakers typically don't want to recycle their batteries. They'd rather find a way to get rid of their batteries for really cheap or for free. And, and that's really where repurposing comes in because we create so much additional value. You know, we extend these batteries' life for another 10 to 15 years in a stationary storage application. These applications come in handy for off-grid clients like God's Pocket Scuba Resort in Port Hardy, where their Flora Energy System has helped the resort reduce its reliance on diesel generators. What happens is we create um, a hybrid system, very similar to a Prius. So by creating a hybrid system, batteries plus a diesel generator, we're able to reduce diesel consumption to about 70%. Cutting back on fuel use and repurposing batteries is a double win for our carbon footprint. Moment also has some very local projects in the works. We're super excited to be working with YBR Airport. Soon in 2024, we'll be deploying our battery systems for EV charging applications there. So watch out for our systems out there, all the way to we are working with BC Hydro uh, on a bunch of projects um, out on the island to help with 
grid resiliency for hospitals and hospital buildings to ensure that you know Canadians have access to clean and reliable energy. That's really our mission. We believe it's a fundamental human right for all humans to have access to clean and reliable energy. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Moment Energy is truly an industry leader in sustainable solutions to our EV battery problems. You can feel extra good about your electric vehicle knowing that its battery could eventually power remote communities in a clean and reliable way. For more info about Moment Energy and the projects they've got on the go, you can head over to momentenergy.com. For Shaping BC, I'm Jerry Mayer Judson. We're talking about housing earlier uh, in the show. We had Dylan Kruger on, uh, city councillor from Delta. Of course, the housing minister joined us at uh, 3.45 today to talk a little bit about his latest announcement. And that, of course, is that BC has introduced legislation that will allow condo towers of up to 20 stories near SkyTrain stations, up to 12 stories near Metro Vancouver bus exchanges, and up to 10 stories in Victoria and Kelowna. I would love to know how the people in Victoria feel, especially the uh, long-term residents. But uh, there you go, ten stories, uh, up to 10 stories in Victoria and Kelowna. Uh, municipalities can choose to go higher, of course. Now, these transit-oriented development areas are within have to be within 800 metres of a SkyTrain station and 400 metres of a bus exchange. Um, and we're also told that developers will still have to put in parking for those with disability and businesses, but uh, these transit developments will have no parking minimums at, uh, and be determined project by project uh, as well. That all, of course, happened just before 3 o'clock today. Well, joining me now uh, to talk about uh, this latest announcement, but also yesterday's announcement when the minister said that um, the, the provincial government is introducing legislation uh, that will uh, pre-zone land as well. We're joined now by Eric Woodward, Township of Langley Mayor. Uh, Mr. Woodward, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks you for for having me on again. Quite the quite the week it, it is. It is uh, you know, and I was thinking uh, as as those of us in the media business here, we're taking it all in. But I, I think of you at the city hall level, where you have the repercussions are significant, not just at a, a council and mayor level, but at the public servant level in regards to just how you look at projects and how fundamentally this potentially can change how you developed your your community. So let's just start off with today's announcement in regards to density. City yeah. around Sky train stations and and bus zones. What do you think of it so far? I mean, this one kind of you know on the surface you know kind of makes sense. If you have a Sky train investment or you have a significant uh, bus service exchange, that of course we want to see housing, transit oriented development located around around this infrastructure. But again, here we are with the one size fits all uh, planning approach from Victoria, where you know we have one bus exchange here. And uh, to re- to require density around that bus exchange in in an area like again Walnut Grove or other areas without par- parking requirements uh, for the township of Langley is simply absurd. And because residents are still very car dependent. I mean, it's a balanced neighborhood here. I mean, we do not have the walkability options of a Vancouver. We're still progressing to that level of development and walkability and urban design here. It's a long-term process. Vancouver didn't get there overnight, mm-hmm. and we're not going to get there overnight. And to, to come in like we're Vancouver again because they can't get their act together on housing, to come out to the township of Langley and require that uh, with no parking requirements because there happens to be a bus that goes to one location, again, it's absurd. Hmm. Uh, 
yesterday, uh, I spoke to the minister, as I did today, and one of the things I talked to him about yesterday was, you know, we, we the negotiations that go on between a developer and a city in regards to development cost charges, in regards to the amenities for a community. Now, the minister talked about um, some of these things dragging on for a very long time, which, of course, stifles more supply, things getting built quickly. Let's listen to the minister right now in regards to his comments on the issue of development cost charges. Let's take a listen. Well, one of the biggest frustrations that I hear from uh, you know home builders uh, throughout British Columbia is the fact that uh, there's never cost certainty. Sometimes they start with a project, they know what the DCC costs are up front, and then as they go through rezoning, uh, often what happens, and most people perhaps don't know, is that uh, a negotiation happens where the local government officials say to the builder, home builder, hey, we need you to do this, we need you to pay this cost. And so imagine going forward with a project, never really knowing what your cost is going to be, uh, and, and that uncertainty that comes with it, and the delay that comes with that negotiation. Sometimes it could be a year or longer. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. Your thoughts, because you're yeah. <laughs> much more experienced than this. So what do you think about that yeah. comment? Uh, I think, you know, again, it's it's back to this. Um, there's a lot of variety in how different municipalities with different development and uh, greenfield versus infill, you know, process development applications. We, we can process a development application very quickly. We have set community amenity contribution and development cost charges rates that are well known and well in advance. And we require the right for a rezoning process to get road dedications, greenway dedications, school and park sites as part of that process. And from what we've read in the legislation so far, uh, we're not we're going to we're going to not even sure if we can comply with it because we have no way to pre-zone land to the degree they're going to require of us um, without the ability to 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 get road dedications and sidewalks and, and greenways. And again, just shows, I think, that, uh, you know, we're starting to see that perhaps we have a Ministry of Housing that doesn't really understand how housing is created. Um, do you think this legislation is actually built for the city of Vancouver, Delta, Richmond, Burnaby, to a certain degree, where they don't have a lot of free land left anymore? A little bit, probably, but they don't have that free land where they can really decide what they want to do moving forward, let's say, like a Surrey, like the township of Langley. I think you said you had 2,000 acres that still hasn't been developed or something like that uh, yesterday. Uh, That's right. So do you think yeah. this, 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 this stuff that they're, all the stuff they've introduced today, it's like a fire hose of legislation this week. Um, it, it, it's almost geared towards an urban core, not necessarily the suburbs or exurbs. Sometimes they refer to the outer suburbs where you do have yeah. land and you want to shape a community and it takes time to do so. And that's correct. And that's why we, you know, we've been highlighting that one of the options that could be considered is to focus on housing targets and a range of housing types that the municipalities would need to deliver. And we would be able to deliver those in brand new neighborhoods without going into certain established areas and, and eliminating parking requirements. Uh, we would be able to deliver townhouses and row homes and secondary suites. The minister mentioned, you know, that people are looking to find and can't find. And we're producing those units um, in affordable ways out here in the township. And to have this legislation in place, uh, it's actually going to have significant ramifications for us where a number of neighborhood plans that are underway and ready to go may have to be completely redone now, delaying the creation of new housing for, for a long time. Uh, 
where do you you say it's delayed it's going to delay potential projects uh, in regards yep. to moving forward here would, would you want a meeting with the minister do you think he needs to sit down with some of you uh, some of the uh, some of the mayors and councils that uh, as i say have land but want to have more of a say in regards to how it gets developed I and mean, when you want to sit down with him so I've requested a meeting and, um, you know, where our council is now uh, going to be reviewing the implications of the legislation at the next meeting. And, you know, we're going to try to communicate some of council's collective concerns uh, and staff are still reviewing the legislation. I mean, I've I've read it, gone over it. And, you know, a lot of it is exactly what you've said. It applies to areas like Vancouver with significant transit investment that haven't produced the housing. And here we are in the township of Langley growing the fastest growing in the region by percentage of population with huge greenfield opportunity and we're getting it done and you know we can get an approval in less than a year and a project can get underway and here we are with all of these uh, draconian measures being brought in that really just don't apply here. Yeah. I mean, you've got to remind yourself of Vancouver. you got an expo line uh, that opened at Expo 86, or maybe just a little bit before Expo 86, and you still have neighbourhoods in Vancouver around SkyTrain stations that have single-family homes. It is kind of kind yeah. of shocking in regards to, you know, you look over at Burnaby with Metrotown and, and uh, Brentwood and Lougheed and, and other areas, it is shocking that they still have single-family home neighbourhoods surrounding Skytrain stations. It is, it is, it is, and we look at that, and you know, we'll, we'll admit that we're frustrated by that. We don't, we don't get the level of transit infrastructure investment here that other parts of the region have have really seen the investments go there, and they haven't followed through with housing. So I, I, I have some sympathy for the minister's desire to to break the logjam around that, mm-hmm. and to tell Vancouver and perhaps others to get their act together. But the Township of Langley, we are building the housing and we're doing it with new greenfield, uh, developable land inside the urban containment boundary. We're doing it in a transit oriented way. And uh, some of these rules, uh, we're not sure how we're going to comply with pre-zoning a 20 year housing supply, which was in yesterday's uh, legislation. We don't know how we can comply with that with the process required for road dedications is something as simple as that. How do we get a road with development if we pre-zone the land? And so we're not sure we can even comply with the legislation, which may lead us to have to consider other options. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate your thoughts, uh, and it keeps a lot of us in the city honest as well. Love to yeah. always uh, catch up with you and the good folks over there at Langley Town. Oh, I always, so appreciate, always appreciate the balanced view. I listened to Councillor Kruger's interview and and I, I you know some of what he says makes sense and i sympathize with the minister's desire to get housing built and we're here to help him to achieve that and uh we we think a more balanced nuanced approach is what's required all right thank you so much for your time okay thank you I got to tell you, being a political staffer uh, is not easy. Uh, Having been in politics, they work long hours, lots of stress, uh, and uh, it's a tough job. I'll be the first one to say it. Uh, But it's also a very fulfilling job uh, because you get a lot of things done. Uh, And this mayor, who promised to get a lot of things done, Mayor Ken Sims, promised to, of course, bring Vancouver's swagger back. Well, guess what? His director of communications, the second director of communications within a year, is gone. What's going on over at City Hall? Joining me now is Jen St. Denis, reporter with the TIE. Hi, Jen. How are you? 
I'm doing well. How are you, Josh? I'm doing better than Harrison Fleming right about now. I can tell you that much. So, uh, talk, it, it, like I, I was hearing rumors about this, uh, to be blunt, yesterday, and I heard a few print reporters were on it, like yourself. Um, have you been able to sort of get a sense of what transpired, what happened? No, I haven't really been able to get the true answer. You know, I've, I've heard rumors, I've heard speculation, um, and I, you know, I was able to interview Pete Fry, who's one of the the three opposition councillors who kind of opined. But no, I don't really know the real reason that that he's left. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I mean, I think he was there for how long? Three months. Just yeah, then? just three months. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, as I was saying, being a public staffer is never easy. It's a very stressful job. Um, From my sense of it so far in the last uh, two or three months, the focus uh, has been housing, housing, housing from from Ken Sims. Uh, But there has been no sort of indication if it was that or, or whatever was happening behind the scenes in regards to direction. Yeah, it's a little hard to know what's going on in terms of what they're looking for in their comms director. Um, you know, they started out with Taylor Verrill. He was he was in place like right after the election, um, and then he was he was gone. And then there was I think it was a period of a few months when there was nobody in the job. Um, and then Harrison Fleming was announced. And you know, just from Harrison's background, it was pretty. You know, he he came under some pretty intense scrutiny right away mm-hmm. um so i have no idea if that's that sort of media scrutiny played any part in this yeah he my understanding and i've met him once once uh, they had announced him as the communications director and i and look i i can't go on anything beyond my meeting with him i found him to be uh, uh thoughtful uh you know politically engaged bright uh, all of those things, and I thought, okay, uh, and I certainly understand that he worked in the rough and tumble world of Alberta politics, especially mm-hmm. when uh, Jason Kenney was there, of course, uh, challenged by some of the more far-right members of, of his caucus and, and that movement out there, and, and it is a, it's a tough gig out there in Alberta as well. But in your sense, having covered politics for a long time, I mean, these positions, uh, yes, staffers can come and go. But you do need somebody there to sort of guide the overall communications uh, and the uh, sort of outreach for, for, for a city. I mean, this is a pretty important job. It, it is an important job. And they often hold relationships with, with the reporters, especially the reporters who cover City Hall regularly. And I was just thinking about how, you know, Kennedy Stewart, the previous mayor, um, as many criticisms as people might have about him, um, he did have a very consistent team. He had Alvin Singh as comms. Neil Moncton is chief of staff, who, of course, was also um, the person who ran his campaign. So, um, yeah, I think it, when there is someone in there consistently, they do have the chance to kind of really get to know the mayor and the priorities and then also build these relationships um, with local media as well, which, you know, obviously is going to be helpful for uh, you know, mayors are always trying to communicate what they're what they're up to. Yeah, and and generally the rule in politics, when you win a majority, especially a super majority that Ken Sim mm-hmm. has, do the big stuff in the first couple of years, especially the controversial stuff uh, that yeah. you had promised to do, uh, because uh, you know and, uh, you're going to lose some support. That's the nature of politics. Uh, but f- but but being in the first year, uh, I know they did the, the hired the police officers more to do in regards to mental health nurses. But there's a pig, pretty big agenda that they have to deal with here. And in one year to lose two comms directors, uh, it is concerning because you should be focusing on other things, specifically making sure all the things that you promised are going to be done. And uh, that is a bit uh, surprising. 
Yeah, you do wonder what's going on just in terms of like the the work environment inside the mayor's office. It is it is highly politicized. You know, these are city staffers, but it's a very it's become a very political office. So, yeah, you do kind of wonder like why there isn't consistency there, um, especially because now, like you said, he kind of got the 100 police officers hired. That was apparently relatively smooth. Um, apparently, the police didn't have much problems recruiting. They've had a much, much tougher hire, uh, time hiring the mental health nurses that they also promised. You know, it, very, very typical, like, ABC style to have this sort of right-leaning promise, 100 more cops, but then soften it with 100 mental health nurses. But now they really have to turn their attention to housing, and that's going to be a much, like, tougher nut to crack, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a tough one. It's a very tough one. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No problem. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.